Good morning. All right. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to be here with you guys, as always, uh, as we gather to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will be continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, last week we finished off chapter 12, and so this week we will be uh, we will begin our study of chapter 13. And so, if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up. Make your way to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles located underneath some of the chairs around you. I do think it is very important that uh, we follow along in the Word and that we see and read for ourselves what the Scriptures say and teach, that we may follow in the example of the Bereans of Acts chapter 17. Uh, When Paul visited the city of Berea, he went into the synagogues, and he taught the Jews about Jesus Christ, and it said of them that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the Word with all readiness, and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so, Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. You see, the Bereans, they first received the word taught to them about Jesus. Then they gathered together to search the scriptures to see whether what Paul was saying, teaching, and what he was teaching lined up with what the word of God taught. And then they believed the message and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage us just to follow in that great example, to receive the word, to search the word, and to believe upon the word. You know, I want to encourage you all to be good Bereans. Make sure that what's being taught lines up with what the rest of Scripture teaches. Uh, And so that's why I always encourage you guys to to bring your Bibles, to be able to follow along in your own Bible, to read it, to know what it says for yourself, so that you may discern what the Word of God is teaching you. All right, everyone there in Luke chapter 13? All right, if so, why don't you uh, rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I'm going to read through the entirety of our text, and then I'll pray and ask God's blessings and leaning upon our study together. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you to do your best to follow along in your own Bible. So Luke, continuing his account of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, he records the following in chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We'll pause right there. Let's pray and ask God to lead us through this. Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for your word, that you've not left us, abandoned us to figure things out on our own, but you've given us your word, that we might read it, that we might know your heart, your desire for us. And Lord, as we uh, look at this portion of scripture, Lord, I pray that we look at it with a fresh set of eyes. I pray that our, uh, our ears, 
and as well as our heart and our mind would all be open to receive what your spirit desires to say to us, your church. Lord, we give you our um, time of study. We do thank you that uh, you are on the move and that you are actively working in this world, in this community, and in our lives individually. And so, Lord, we just look forward to that work you're going to continue to do in us. And we submit ourselves to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. If you have been with us over the last few weeks, you will recall that chapter 12 emphasized a number of warnings that uh, Jesus had for his disciples and for the multitudes that had gathered around him that, that particular day. He warned the disciples about hypocrisy, about covetousness, about worry. Uh, He warned them about negligence, and he warned them and the multitudes about making assumptions pertaining to his coming. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus emphasized to the group the need to properly discern the times and to take advantage of the times they had to get right with God before it was too late. Jesus referred to the group as hypocrites because they could properly discern the weather, but they failed to properly discern the significance of the time that they lived in. He rebuked them for not judging what was right, for not understanding the severity of the situation that they were in. They needed to get right with the Lord prior to coming before the Lord in judgment. To wait until judgment day, to try and make right with the Lord at that time, is to wait too long. It would surely end in disaster. Jesus offers an opportunity to us all to come to him to have our accounts settled now, prior to judgment, prior to coming before the Lord, and so that we might have a right standing with the Lord. The offer is the gospel message that we preach, okay? that we can be given a right standing with the Lord by grace through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Well, chapter 13 picks up where we left off. It is the same day, is the same multitude and group of people that are gathered around Jesus. He's still speaking to this same setting. Um, And so we pick up with the account here. um, Chapter 13, he instructs the people in a very important element involved in settling those accounts. Jesus teaches the multitudes about the need for repentance. Now, the message of repentance is not a popular one, okay? But it is a prominent one within the scriptures. The Bible clearly teaches us the need for repentance in order to have a right standing with the Lord. And so, in our text this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of repentance. What it means, why is it so important, and what it ought to look like, and what it ought to lead us. Uh, lead to in our own lives. The title of our study this morning is Repent or Perish, Uh, and it's based upon the repeated instruction Jesus gives in our text this morning. Twice in our text, in verse 3 and in verse 5, Jesus states, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, when we hear the words repent or perish, I think oftentimes we may envision some harsh, um, you know, high and mighty uh, street preacher that's just blasting out uh, one of those turn or burn messages to the masses that are passing by him. And oftentimes we think of those people or we can think of those people as being perhaps too harsh, perhaps too overbearing, or perhaps being judgmental or maybe even lacking some love and some grace. Uh, And sometimes they are. But does the message repent or perish have to be understood in that context? 
Can it be a message of love and grace, of forgiveness and long-suffering, a plea from God for people to get right with Him while they still can? I believe it can be, and that is what we will be looking at in our study this morning. For those of you who like to take notes and outline our text, okay, we're going to go ahead and divide our text into two major parts. First part is going to deal with a plea for repentance in verses 1 through 5. The second part uh, deals with a parable about repentance in verses 6 through 9. So let's go ahead. We're going to look at our opening verses once again in the opening of this first major part dealing with a plea for repentance. Read with me once again verses 1 and 2 just to kind of get us going. It says, There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? We'll pause right there. So our text opens up telling us about some of the people that were part of the multitude at that time. Remember that Jesus and his disciples have been surrounded by this great innumerable multitude that were trampling upon each other, trying to gain an audience before Jesus. The opening of chapter 12 told us about that. And we come to find out that there were some who were able to get before Jesus and tell him about a particular situation, an event that took place in Jerusalem that many were talking about, no doubt. This event involved some Galileans who had come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple and one Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Now, as governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate was given military forces, he was given financial oversight, and judicial responsibility over the region of Judea, which Jerusalem, the city obviously, was in that region. And his main job was to keep the Pax Romana, okay, the uh, Roman peace, okay, uh, the peace that ancient Rome imposed on all of its conquered territories. It was an imposed peace, okay, that oftentimes was not very peaceful for any who dared oppose it or stir up any sort of trouble against it. Just who these Galileans were is unknown for sure, uh, but evidently as they came down to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem, Pilate had them executed, and he would end up mingling or mixing up their blood with the blood of their own sacrifices that would be offered upon the altars there at the temple. Now, this is a, a very severe uh, punishment, okay? and many suppose that perhaps these Galileans could have been involved in some sort of plot to stir up a revolt or a rebellion. Uh, Galilee was known as a hotbed of sorts for fanatics and zealots who sought to bring down Rome by force. Uh, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, actually frequently mentioned Galileans as the most turbulent and rebellious people, being ready to disturb the Roman authority upon any and all occasions. One particular leader of revolt from the region of Galilee was a man by the name of Judas. Uh, Josephus mentions him in his Antiquities of the Jews, how this Judas opposed paying tribute to Caesar and submitted, uh, submitting to the Roman government. 
It's actually believed that he is the same person that's mentioned by Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, when Gamaliel speaks of a Judas of Galilee who rose up in the days of the census, who drew away many people after him. The scripture tells us that he perished, and all who obeyed him, all who followed him basically, um, were dispersed. Some suggest that perhaps these Galileans that came down to Jerusalem were supporters of Judas of Galilee, and that during one of the Jewish feasts of the year, when they uh, it was required mandatory attendance to come and make your sacrifices there at the temple, that Pilate seized his opportunity to have them murdered, sending a company of troops to the temple to execute them while they offered their sacrifices. And to add further insult to injury, not just murdering them, and really to send a warning to any others who had thoughts of any sort of rebellion or insurrection, Pilate decided to add the blood of these Galileans to the blood of their sacrifices that they were offering upon the altar, okay? Uh, profaning the altar and, and really profaning everything that the Jews stood for in their uh, sacrificial system, okay? Now, we can't say specifically that is what's being referred to in our text, but it does make some sense when we compare what's written in the scriptures with what comes from secular historians like Josephus. It's probably something, it could have been this situation or something very similar to this. Now, upon hearing about this incident, Jesus answered the people who brought this up saying, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? The word sinners is actually an adjective in the original Greek that comes from the Greek verb hamartano. Hamartano means to sin, to miss a mark on the way or to not hit the mark. Anyone who keeps missing the mark in his relationship to God is a sinner, okay? really simple. It's actually an archery term. Uh, A few of the men learned about this yesterday when we went out to archery land. When you don't hit the mark, okay, when you don't hit what you're aiming for, that is called sin, okay? And let me tell you guys, there was a whole lot of sinning going on yesterday at the archery range, okay? Uh, We all missed the mark many, many, many times, okay? Um, Humbling. It was fun, but humbling, okay? Um, Perry, you know, took that opportunity to teach a devotion, highlighted the fact that we were all a bunch of sinners, and that, that was clearly on display there on the course. You know, sometimes people think of the word sinner as some sort of, you know, awful person that's just, you know, oh, that person's pure evil, as if to suggest that the title sinner should be reserved for the worst kind of people, but that is not the case, you guys. We are all sinners, okay? We all miss the mark. None of us hit the bullseye every single time we do something, okay? The scriptures tell us that there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Perry highlighted this yesterday in the devotion when it talks about how there's no difference. It's speaking about different types of people like Jews and Gentiles, males or females, slaves or free men. It doesn't matter how you try to divide between people, officer and enlisted, Navy or Marine, American or Japanese, believer or unbeliever, when it comes to 
sin. We are all the same. Okay? We are all sinners. Even after we come to faith, we still struggle with sin. Paul talks about that himself, how he longs to do, he, he wants to do something, but he doesn't do that. But he things he doesn't want to do, he does do. And he talks about who's going to deliver me from this wretched body. <laughs> you know, he struggled with sin, even though he was, you know, a believer. He was Paul the apostle, right? He would even go on to say that he was the chief of sinners, okay? We are all sinners. The people wanted to know Jesus' assessment of the situation. Were these people worse sinners than other people? Was this God's way of judging these Galileans for being more sinful than others? You know, Jewish theology based much upon the Old Testament and the teachings and the traditions of the elders and the rabbis, they held a very strong sense of individual suffering being directly attributed to individual sin. You know, we see evidence of this in Job's friends. Can we use that term loosely? Okay, friends. Uh, who came to him during his own season of great suffering and concluded that he must be in great sin and in need of repentance. Right? Eliphaz, he stated, Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. His friend was basically saying, this is all your fault, Job. You must have some kind of secret sin going on, and that's why you're experiencing all this pain and suffering. His other friends, Bildad and Zophar, would go on to say similar types of things. They believed in what is referred to as divine retribution, that God blasts the sinner with great punishment, but he gives blessing upon the upright and faithful. And so they would assume that punishment and blessings were indicators of one's own righteous standing. Okay, if you're being blessed with great treasures and great wealth, well, the assumption was, man, you're living a godly life, right? But if you're experiencing great pain and trials, difficulties and suffering, well, then it must be because you are living in sin and God is punishing you. But we know that wasn't the case, right? We know that God said of Job that he was a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and shunned evil. Okay? Even think about this idea of, of Jesus who suffered okay, upon the cross, right? Where we say, oh, yeah, the Jews look at that and say, yeah, he's getting what he deserves. He must have some hidden sin, Jesus, you know. No, of course not, right? This wasn't limited to just Old Testament days, though. We see evidence of this type of thinking even within the lives of the disciples, in John chapter 9, we read of a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, it wasn't a matter of, was this a result of sin? That was already a foregone conclusion to them. Oh, this guy's blind? Oh, someone sinned. It was either him or his parents. You know, so who was it, Jesus? You, know, you see, the disciples, that was the only explanation for this man's blindness, was because of divine retribution. Because God was punishing sin, either the parent's sin or the child's sin. But Jesus corrects their thinking when he answered them, saying, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus informed the disciples that the man's blindness from birth had absolutely nothing to do with sin. He was born blind so that the works of God may be revealed. And so, let's continue on in our text 
to get to Jesus's assessment of the situation. Were these worse sinners? Was their suffering a direct correlation to their sin? Let's read verse 3, see what Jesus says. Jesus says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We'll stop right there. Jesus is very forthright here. He answers his own question. Were these worse sinners? You know, should people come to that conclusion based upon the fact that they suffered such a horrifying fate, being murdered and having their blood profaned and mixed with the offerings upon the altar? Jesus says, I tell you, no, right? These people were were sinners all the same. And their sufferings had absolutely nothing to do with the degree of their sinfulness. But what Jesus said next is of great importance. You guys, you need to pay attention. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see what Jesus did here? The people wanted to know Jesus' assessment of some hot topic discussion of the day involving some other people, right? Were those Galileans worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Jesus answered the question, I tell you, no. But then he brings the situation to the personal level. As if to say, let's not just talk about the hypothetical or how this applies to the other people like those Galileans. Let's look at your life. How does this apply to you? Jesus was basically saying they needed to be less concerned about other people's sins and more concerned about their own situation. For they were in the same situation as those Galileans. They too had sinned and they too would perish just like the Galileans. That word perish is a specific word here. It doesn't just simply mean to die. Moreover, it refers to eternal death and exclusion from the Messiah's kingdom in heaven. You see, the scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners and the payment for our sin is death, eternal death. We all deserve death. We all deserve eternal separation from God and we are all facing the same consequences for our sin. It doesn't matter if you have just a little bit of sin or a whole lot of sin. We're all in the same boat. Because we are all sinners, we are all facing the same consequences for our sin. We're all headed for eternal death and separation from God in a place called hell that was created for the devil and his minions but listen you guys jesus created a way for us to escape the penalty for our sins and that is through the message of repentance through the gospel again i know and i understand the message of repentance is not a very popular one but it is a very prominent one and one that i am eternally grateful for John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. In Mark's gospel, it states of him how he came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Peter preached a message of repentance on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples who had gathered together in the upper room waiting upon the Lord. It was Peter who stood up and declared, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul preached a message of repentance. In the book of Acts, it describes him going from house to house, not holding anything back that was helpful, but proclaiming to them all, to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself preached a message of repentance. Jesus started off his ministry in Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent in the Greek literally means to change the mind. 
Repentance speaks of having a change of mind, or we might say a change of heart, if you will, when it comes to sin. Instead of living in willful sin and enjoying it, we change the way we look at sin, the way we see sin. We understand that sin is something that deserves death and is something that's keeping us from in eternity with the Lord. And so we have a change of mind. We start to see how God sees sin. And that change of mind or that change of heart, it leads to a change in our actions. It leads to a change in our lives. Quite simply, we could say that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. It involves regret or sorrow accompanied by a true change of heart toward God. You know, the Bible actually speaks of two different types of sorrow that we can experience. There's godly sorrow, and then there's what Paul refers to as the sorrow of this world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For godly sorrow produces repentance. That's what we want, right? So godly sorrow, it produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. but The sorrow of the world produces death. You see, the sorrow of this world is the kind of sorrow and regret you feel for getting caught up in sin. When we get busted, when we get caught with our hand in the cookie jar and we feel bad and we say, oh man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I really feel bad, right? But you really aren't sorry for what you did. You're just sorry you got caught. You're sorry for all the fallout that's come as a result of your sin. But you're not sorry about what you actually did. Okay, if you wouldn't have got caught, you'd still probably be doing it. Okay? That's, God, that, that's worldly sorrow. Okay? That kind of sorrow only leads to death. It has no impact upon your life in any sort of godly way or manner. However, godly sorrow, on the other hand, leads to repentance. Godly sorrow is not just being sorry for being caught and the fallout created by it, but it is sorrowful uh, sorrowful over the action itself. This is the kind of sorrow God desires in our lives. God wants to see our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes as He sees them. He wants our hearts and our minds to be aligned with His when it comes to how we see sin, how we think about sin. When we allow ourselves to experience genuine godly sorrow, it will lead to true repentance, a change of mind that leads to a changed life. And so we need not face the penalty of our sins. Jesus has made a way to escape the punishment of our sin through repentance and faith in his sacrifice upon the cross. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But we don't have to face those consequences if we settle our account with the Lord prior to judgment day. Jesus went to the cross and he paid our debt for us. He willingly laid down his perfect sinless life in exchange for ours. He took the punishment for our sins. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 states how God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah testifies of Jesus' work upon the cross, stating, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have churned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
You see, the Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the rest of it says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we are now left with a choice. We can choose to remain in our sin and pay the price for our sin, which will be eternal death and separation from God in a place called hell, or we can choose to repent from our sin and receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The choice is ours. We must respond to the gospel. We must respond to the work of the Holy Spirit as He confirms these truths to our hearts, as He convicts us of our sin, and He shows us our need for a Savior. We must respond. Paul writes in Romans that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Uh, He continues a few verses later emphasizing that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We must follow the exhortation found in Joshua where he calls upon the people of Israel to choose for themselves whom they will serve. Joshua stated, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. What about you? That's what Jesus is getting to here, you guys. (laughs) Oh, what about this? What about that? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's not, has nothing to do with their sin, but what about your sin? Have you made the decision to respond to the gospel message? Have you repented and received the free gift of eternal life offered through Christ Jesus? Or are you still facing the same fate as the people Jesus was speaking to? Are you going to perish just like the rest because of your unwillingness to repent from your sin? The choice truly is yours. You know, sometimes people get mad and say, how can a God of love send someone to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. We choose hell when we say, I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to live my life my own way. We're saying, I want to go to hell, God. Go ahead and send me there. God doesn't send anybody. We make our own choice. Let's continue in our text. We'll look at what else Jesus had to say to the multitudes as he pleads with them to repent. Verses 4 and 5, it says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who would dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus brings up a a similar situation where lives were lost unexpectedly. They These were not people that were purposefully killed and murdered, but people that were merely involved in an accident of some kind. Jesus mentioned a time where there was some sort of accident involving the collapse of a tower in Jerusalem and falling upon 18 people and killing them. Jesus asked if they thought those 18 people somehow deserved to die and that this accident was really God judging the people for their sin. And the answer was the exact same as before. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Listen, these people were involved in an accident as all. This tower fell and there was people that got trapped underneath it and and died. They didn't deserve to die because they were worse sinners than other people dwelling in Jerusalem. That sort of thinking is foolishness. Listen, I know this is not necessarily a feel-good message here today, you guys, okay? 
But people die every single day. It is part uh, of life. To think that people die because God was punishing them, okay? Or, or to think perhaps because God was unable to save their life uh, because there was so much sin in the, or something like that, that's just foolishness. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is filled with sin, a world that is corrupted, and we feel the effects of that upon ourselves. It is natural. Our bodies wear down, okay? Some faster than others, but inevitably they all eventually wear down given enough time. We live with imperfections in this world, in our bodies. Sometimes those imperfections expedite the ill effect of sin on our bodies. Such things as cancer and disease and defects, the result of a fallen nature, living in a sinful world and the impact of sin upon our lives. It can lead to what we may think of as an untimely death. But listen, the Lord knows our days. He knows our beginning and our end. He knows the time that we have allotted to us. And He pleads with us to repent and to get right with Him while we can before we perish. Listen, you guys. Tragedies will happen in this life. And the only way to be fully prepared for them is to repent and get right with the Lord today that you may be prepared for what's to come after this life. Our lives here on earth, they are short. They are like a vapor. They are here today and gone tomorrow. Let's make sure that we are ready for eternity. Well, let's take a look at our second major section as Jesus uses a parable about repentance to illustrate a few important aspects of God when it comes to repentance. We'll just take a look at the parable as a whole, verse 6 through 9. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. You know, we've looked at a few parables before in our study of the Gospel of Luke thus far. And as I've mentioned before, parables are usually earthly stories or illustrations that convey a heavenly truth. And in this parable, Jesus speaks of a certain man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard that wasn't producing any fruit. The owner of the vineyard instructed the keeper of the vineyard to cut the fig tree down because it wasn't producing the fruit. But the keeper of the vineyard requested that he hold off removing the tree, give the keeper of the vineyard opportunity to give special care and attention to see if it may bear fruit. And if it did bear fruit, well, then all would be well. Uh, However, if it didn't bear fruit in the next season, he would agree to chop it down. A, A pretty straightforward description of a situation many would be familiar with as Jesus was speaking to somewhat of an agrarian society, you know, they knew how to plant vineyards, they knew how to plant crops, they knew how to do that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, you've got a plant that's not producing any fruit, you know, after a while you go ahead and you dig it up so that you might make room for other plants that are going to produce fruit, right? Very simple. Now, what this parable actually means is something that is a little more challenging to understand uh, from the spiritual side, okay? And since Luke didn't record any of the disciples asking questions about this parable, we're left to try and decipher it for ourselves with the help of God's word and his spirit. I do think that it's very likely that this illustration, this parable, could have a dual interpretation. Um, For one, 
Uh, the use of the fig tree is significant, I believe. Oftentimes in the Bible, Israel, the nation, is portrayed and symbolized as a fig tree. And so it could be that this parable is specifically being directed to the nation of Israel and, and to the Jews. So this description is, is just applicable to the Jews. And if you look at it from that perspective, excuse me, uh, perspective. The owner and the keeper of the vineyard are working together as a team to bring about a great harvest. I believe this is a picture of the Godhead working together as a team to bring about a great harvest of souls, not figs necessarily. The owner of the vineyard has been coming for three years looking for and expecting fruit. Now it may be, I'm going to throw this out here, that this fruit tree is not just in its first three years, okay? Uh, it could be, but I do not believe that is the case. For Leviticus tells us that when the people planted all kinds of fruit trees for food, that for the first three years, the fruit was to be considered uncircumcised. It shall not be eaten, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 23 says. Then in the fourth year, the fruit of that year would all be considered holy to the Lord. It'd be given to the Lord. And it wouldn't be until the fifth year that you could actually partake of the fruit yourself. Uh, again, Leviticus 19:23 through 25 gives us those details. And it would seem that this owner has been coming and expecting fruit for himself the last three years. And so it could be that this fig tree is some seven years old by now and still hasn't produced any fruit. Now, I do think it is significant to consider the fact that Jesus's earthly ministry in the land amounted to about three years. Uh, for three years, Jesus has been going in and out amongst the people, looking for fruit, looking for evidence of faith, looking for changed lives, looking for the nation to recognize him as their Messiah and for them to understand his coming to them as Messiah, what it meant, not what they wanted it to mean. But it would seem that by and large, the fruit just wasn't there. Because there was no evidence of fruit, the owner wanted to go ahead, chop down the tree, make room for other plant life, stating, why does it use up the ground? And the idea being that the ground could be used to plant other plants or trees that will bear fruit and will be productive. But the keeper of the vineyard wants a little more time to work on the fig tree. The keeper of the vineyard doesn't want to give up just yet. He wants to give every opportunity imaginable for the tree to produce. You know, within one year's time frame from this time when Jesus speaks this to the multitudes, okay, within one year's time frame, Jesus will have gone to the cross he will have resurrected from the dead. He will have ascended to the Father. And also the Holy Spirit will have come and empowered the church in continuing the spread of the gospel message. All of this represents more opportunity for the nation of Israel to respond to the gospel and for them to come to faith. If, after all that, the city and people still haven't turned to faith, then God would allow them to stay in their unbelief and reap the consequences of their decisions. Interestingly enough, we do know that the city of Jerusalem was completely taken over and the temple destroyed within less than 40 years, a single generation from the time of Jesus' crucifixion. The city and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD uh, at the siege of Jerusalem. And so that is one way to look at this parable, to see this parable as a parable pertaining to the Jewish nation and, and it might even pertain some sort of prophetic element as to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. But, I believe there's another way that we can look at this parable 
and look at it to understand it from a universal picture, that this parable is meant to go out to all people and to encourage and exhort all people to live their lives in such a way that they show evidence of their repentance through the fruit of their lives. John the Baptist preached, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear root good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so we see this this combination of repentance and bearing fruit and, you know, removing and cutting down these trees. There is a definite, definite parallel and correlation. A life that is truly repentant will bear fruit. A truly repentant heart will show itself in a changed life and a life that bears much fruit for the Lord. And I believe that's one of the main points that we're to take from this parable. That God is expecting us to bear fruit in our lives. But listen, He doesn't expect us to bear fruit in and of our own strength. Okay? Bearing fruit is not a work of the flesh, but it is a natural byproduct of a healthy tree that is connected to the vine, to the roots. Right? Trees aren't out there going, mm, you know, and an apple pops out, and he's like, yeah, you know, I did it. No, it's just a natural byproduct, right? If that tree's plugged into the roots and it's got everything that it needs, it is going to naturally produce fruit. It's not an effort. It's not a try. It's just that's what's going to happen, right? And in like manner, you guys, our lives, okay, it, it, it will be a natural thing. It's not a work of the flesh. We're not talking about a works-based type of salvation or anything like that. We're just saying, hey, you know what? If you really are repentant, it will show in your life. It'll just be a, a natural byproduct of you being plugged in to the Lord. God expects us to bear much fruit as we remain connected to him. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing if you're not plugged in okay to to jesus if you're not connected to the vine you're going nothing nothing that's what's going to happen okay but if you are plugged in it's going to be this natural fruit that will come the ability to produce great fruit is a genuine work of God in us. It's not a work of the flesh. It's a natural byproduct of a repentant life. And so that's the first main aspect I think we want to pull out. But I believe there's another important aspect and teaching point from this parable. And it is the fact that God is long-suffering towards us. God is patient. He desires us to bear fruit. He desires to see us bear fruit. But Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 states that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, people talk about how the church, you know, all oh, the church has been saying and talking about Jesus coming back for years upon years, and now, you know, we sound like a broken record. Well, what they don't realize is that God is long-suffering that he is holding off on returning because he doesn't want to see any perish. He wants to see as many as possible come to repentance. 
the message of repentance. It may seem harsh and, and ungracious to some, but it is truly filled with love and compassion for the lost. It is a message that longs to see people churn while they still have opportunity. It is a message of God's great long suffering, of Him holding off so that the least and the last will be saved. And so, yeah, every now and then we need to hear a a churn or burn message. We need to hear a a repent or perish message. But no one understands that the message of repentance is a message of God's great love for you. It is a message of God pleading with you to turn from your sin while you still have opportunity to, to get right with Him while you still can. It is a message I gladly received some 22 years ago, and I, for one, am glad that God waited for me. And I'm surely glad God didn't come back 25 years ago. Okay? Because I was lost in a world of sinfulness and I'd be headed straight to hell. (laughs) And I hope and pray that you would think likewise. That you are glad that God waited for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as we consider His continued delay as he tarries we must understand that there are many other people out there that need to still respond to the gospel message may we live lives that are not ashamed of the gospel hey may we be boldly proclaiming it may we boldly live it out may our lives be fruitful and glorifying to the lord that the world around us might get saved amen Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of repentance. Lord, it is one that can seem harsh to maybe some, but Lord, we understand that it is a message of your great love for us. It is a message of your long suffering for us, Lord. Your desire to see us come to you while we still can. And Lord, I know we have, uh, I know a lot of the people that are in this room and I believe that they know you and they've responded to this gospel message. But I don't know everyone, Lord, and I don't know if everyone here has yet responded to this message. And so, Lord, I pray that if today is the day that someone needs to get right with the Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, are working in their heart and working in their life, reminding them and showing them their need for a Savior, I pray that they would be obedient to that work uh, and that calling upon their life today. Lord, that they would believe in their heart, that they would confess with their mouth, that you are Lord, Lord, that you would wash and cleanse them, um, that you would pay the price for their sin, that they might have a right standing with you. Lord, you paid it already, but Lord, that they might receive it, and they might act upon it. And so, Lord, I pray, do that work in their hearts and lives. Lord, for those that have already responded to that gospel message, Lord, I thank you. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your grace. And Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that we might bring honor and glory to you, that we might produce much fruit, not because of our flesh or our own works, Lord, but just a natural byproduct of being plugged in with you, of living for you. And Lord, I pray that you might use our lives to impact the world around us. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.